0: This is a story about some little kids and a big idea. I'm Linda Lutton of WBEZ Chicago. I've been an education reporter for more than a decade. The little kids I'm going to tell you about are fourth graders. Come
1: over here, Miss Linda.
0: They go to so, William we'll go Penn Elementary on Chicago's west side.
2: Good morning. Good morning, Penn students.
0: They're filing into the auditorium on their first day of school because, big deal, The mayor is here, touting rising test scores.
2: Yes, give the teachers a hand for what they've
0: accomplished. The head of public schools at the time, Barbara Bird bennett she's here too. And here comes the big idea.
2: No matter where you're from, what neighborhood you call home, and no matter what your dreams are in life, it is right here at Penn that our children are going to get their start so that they can have that dream, chase that dream, capture that dream, and live it.
0: There it is, the idea I want to talk about, It doesn't matter who you are or where you're born, you can make it. And school is where that happens. School makes the American dream possible. The fourth graders, who are all sitting together pretty near the front, they live in a neighborhood that really needs the American dream. On every side of their school are vacant lots and boarded up buildings.
2: All of Chicago believes in you. There's no subject too hard for you to learn. There's no dream you can't achieve if you stay focused
0: and persistent. If you stay focused and persistent. And with that, she makes clear it's up to the fourth graders and every kid in the room to work hard and succeed. It's up to them and William Penn Elementary. Next, there's another ceremonious school bell. The principal hits play on the sound system. Thank you so much. Class is in. (laughs) The mayor and the TV cameras pack up, and the school year begins. The idea that you should have an equal chance to get ahead, no matter where you're from, what neighborhood you call home, That idea is at the heart of our country's identity. It's why public schools were created. They are the great equalizer. Except too often, they're not. So for decades, this country's come up with reform after reform to try to fix schools. We've adjusted what we teach, how we teach it, all in an effort to get schools to do what we need them to do. Put poor students on more equal footing with wealthier kids and on a path out of poverty. Recently, our countries adopted a more insistent philosophy. It's sometimes called no excuses, as in poverty is no excuse. No excuses basically says that if schools are good enough, they should be able to overcome kids' economic backgrounds. But it also says if schools can't achieve, then something big needs to change, something drastic. That's definitely happening in North Lawndale. Two thirds of the schools in this neighborhood have either been closed, turned into charter schools, or seen their entire staff replaced from the principal to the lunch ladies. Penn is like thousands of other schools across the country that operate in this no excuses moment where everybody's on notice. It's a typical school in a poor neighborhood. And that's why I decided to come here. I wanted to see up close what poverty slings at a school like that. And I wanted to better understand this mystery of why so many schools in poor neighborhoods fail to do what we ask of them. From WBEZ Chicago, this is the view from room 205. It's a year in the life of the fourth grade at a typical school in a poor neighborhood, a school trying to live up to its promise to offer poor kids an equal shot at success. I'm going to tell you the story in chapters, chapter one. Dream big.
1: I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fun and it might be a little challenging.
0: If anybody's going to take the mayor and the school's chief at their word and dream and be persistent, it's the fourth graders in room 205. Do you think you can meet that challenge? Yes! Okay. If you haven't been around fourth graders recently, let me remind you how great they are. They're still curious and fun, happy to please their teachers. They get excited about simple things, like chocolate pudding for lunch.
2: The first thing we're going to do this morning is, what do you know about
0: fourth grade? The room starts to buzz. Their teacher, Ms. Carolyn Hathorn, moves from group to group. If you saw Ms. Hathorn in the supermarket, you might actually guess she's a school teacher. She wears turtlenecks and teacher sweaters and sturdy shoes.
1: I know that fourth grade is not going to be easy. I know that we are going to have to take a test. I
0: know that I might not pass. Whoops. Broke that wrong. They present their work to the class, and Miss Hathorne ooze and ahs them. I love it. Makes them feel proud.
2: I'm just, I'm delighted. I think I'm like this
0: year. Next, Ms. Hathorn turns to the test, not the one they took last year.
2: That's gone away for good. Well, thank you.
0: Lord, thank you, says one of the fourth graders, as if God himself had struck down the old standardized test.
2: Please, miss, if that one went away, there's a new test,
0: And I heard someone say... Park? She writes park on the board, but she doesn't have to. The kids all know about it, even though it's brand new. And they all know the other big standardized tests, too, which they'll take three times this year. Think about this for a minute. The kids in room 205 are only about an hour into fourth grade. Instead of imagining science experiments, art projects, field trips, what they're looking ahead to are the standardized exams. And that's not unusual. This is the norm at high-poverty schools like Penn— Because the tests, they're how we measure a school's success. It's how we decide if all the reforms we're trying are working. In middle-class schools, where kids score well, the tests feel like an afterthought. But in high-poverty schools like Penn, they are center stage.
2: Uh, We're going to have to read a lot. We're going to have to write a lot. And math is very challenging, but I do believe you can do it.
0: I do believe you can do it. But as Miss Hethorn looks out at her brand-new 4th graders, 30 kids look back at her. And try to imagine this, please. 23 of them are boys. She has the son of a former gang leader in class. Wonders what that will be like. There's the boy who's depressed on medication, age 9. Several children have parents in jail or recently released.
2: I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing something right or something very bad, and God is trying to tell me. Uh- <laughs>
0: Chapter 2, Promise. So much about room 205 feels optimistic. Take Jamarie. He's like the classroom IT guy. Ms. Hathorn calls him her little computer man. He keeps it out on the computer just like a little man working. When she can't get a projector to work or the fourth graders have trouble logging on in the computer lab, Jamarie gets the call. So you ever put the password in on the tablets? no.
2: You know what the problem is? Just finding the time to
0: get Jamari is a little chunky. He has a head full of dreadlocks. He looks like he could somehow be your uncle, even though he's only nine. He loves those illustrated encyclopedias and anything electronic. His current obsession, an obscure video game called Mugen. What
1: I'm working on right now with Mugen. I'm trying to uh, make a character. I make my own stages and my own title screen. And I made my own music for it, too.
0: When I meet Jamari's mom, she tells me she's positive. He'll be a video game designer when he grows up.
1: He's going to be somebody.
0: A software engineer, something like that.
1: I got one more, one more backup plan. plan. Something that most people don't use as a backup plan will be a backup dancer.
0: (laughs) I liked thinking of what all the fourth graders might be Chelsea, for instance, a little girl with an outsized laugh. She's always organizing something in room 205. Give her looks now. She's fun, bold, opinionated, maybe a future activist.
1: It's time for Now you need us to cut in.
0: At recess, I'd let the fourth graders play with my radio equipment. Hey, y'all, I'm Kelsey. They'd pretend to be reporters, celebrities, all live on air from room 205.
1: Kelsey, what did you see about the hurricane last night? Um, I didn't see the hurricane, but shout out to my mama. I love you and I miss you and I hope you bring my big old remote control car.
0: Kelsey's got an ear-to-ear smile and a backpack bigger than he is. Just about every time Kelsey got near my tape recorder, he'd give a shout-out to his mom. I thought his shout-outs were like any other kid's shout-outs until I found out he only sees her on Fridays. He's a foster kid, and my microphone, Kelsey saw it as a way to connect with her. He found some way to work it in, no matter what the question was.
1: Did you hear about the Michael Brown shoot? Yeah, I heard about the Michael Brown shoot. It was this white man when this white man killed Michael Brown. And I want to shout out to my mama. Okay, you, you already did that. Uh, what else, what else?
0: Penn is Kelsey's third school in three years. His first was shut down. He changed again after he got put in a foster home. But he's relentlessly positive. Here's what I mean. Kelsey, how was your day? It was
1: a great day. Really? What made it so great? Because we are we, uh, doing math.
0: And reading? Nothing special even. Great is just Kelsey's baseline. When you talk to kids like Kelsey, or so many of the kids in room 205, you feel like, yeah, it is so possible to overcome poverty. By sheer positivity, by smarts, by curiosity, I started going to class as often as I could.
1: We will be Tell us <laughs> that you were us. We will be
0: Chapter 3, What Poverty Slings.
2: Write your name. We're working on three new prefixes. Un plus happy equals unhappy. And it means not happy.
0: Kelsey's working with a partner, and he's doing a little dance right by his desk, which he does unconsciously almost all the time.
1: Kelsey, think. I'm thinking. Fail, disfail, disobey. That don't make sense.
0: Many of the words they're supposed to modify with their new prefixes are words they don't know. Words that neither school nor life along 16th Street has taught them. Like the word ripe. The only example I can come up with is bananas. Ms. Hathorn comes over. This is the second group she's helping with the definition of ripe. Ripe bananas are Yellow. I can't think of a store along 16th Street that sells fruit.
2: The madonna's that are green, All right. what would you say about them,
0: if they're not yellow?
1: I would say they are not all the, way, uh, all the way grown.
0: Kelsey and his friend lean over a dictionary. Yeah, right right,
1: right. there. Fully grown and
0: developed, fully grown, right, unripe. I want to paint you a picture of the neighborhood where the kids in room 205 live. If you want a shorthand way to think about it, I'd say imagine TV footage you've seen of Detroit or Baltimore or the worst parts of New Orleans a few years after Hurricane Katrina. North Lawndale's Katrina has been a decades long storm of disinvestment, slow and thorough. One day, I ran into Kelsey outside, right by Penn. He was with his brother, and we were talking for a while before I realized the conversation kept coming back to the same place.
1: You got candy? I'm sorry, I, I
0: had, mean, had a I lot of chips gone. today.
1: I don't want no more chips. I had hot chips. You full? Nah, you ain't full.
0: Since there was no school to stay, there was also no school breakfast or lunch. A guy from a social service agency happened to pass by coming out of Penn. He tossed each of the boys a little bag of chips. Kelsey's brother finished his own, then started eyeing Kelsey's.
1: I can get some. I just gave you some. I can get two. Thank you.
0: Are you hungry, Colton? Yeah. You are? What did you eat we, today?
1: We ate none. We ate
0: chips. And that's all. Well, plus your breakfast, right?
1: Yeah, breakfast. We didn't eat breakfast. Because we went outside.
0: It's almost 5 p.m.
1: And we did to ask for breakfast anyway. We gotta ask before we get.
0: Kelsey looks at me.
1: Do y'all kids gotta ask before they get? I'm
0: hungry. I started to cry. Let's hear it. Let's see if I can hear it with this. Turn it way up. I put my microphone right up next to Kelton's tummy and I give him my headphones so he can hear. And just as I do, a car drives by, which sounds like a big growl in the headphones. Sometimes it felt like there just wasn't enough food in Lawndale. There's been an increase in people living on $2 a day or less in this country. Lawndale is one of the places they live. Homes that stay dark after the sun goes down, not enough for the light bill. People go to friends' houses to bathe when the gas is cut off. When one of the fourth graders' relatives was arrested for drugs, in 24 hours among everyone they knew, the family couldn't put together a hundred dollars for bail they got to 40. there are more shuttered businesses than open ones along 16th Street, most everything behind bars or bulletproof glass
1: That's the doll
0: Childhood looks different in a neighborhood like this are you I really wanted to see these games Jamarieh was always talking about. All the characters he was building.
1: I'm actually in development of my own game too.
0: At his apartment, I wasn't sure if we'd be looking at a laptop or a desktop. But I had not considered this, his mom's cell phone. i can get it to turn on. So we're looking at a LG cracked screen. Yes, I dropped it. Turns out, room 205's IT guy, little computer man, has no computer at home. He used to use an aunt's computer,
1: computer. but she
0: had to pawn it. Later in the school year, I noticed an article in the newspaper about Minecraft summer camps. Of course, I thought of Jamarié. The story was about how popular the video game camps are. Some parents were offering to pay extra, more than $1,000, just to secure a spot for their kid in a week-long camp. In Lawndale, the per capita income is $12,000 a year. That's close to the amount affluent parents spend on their children annually, not for their basic needs, but for enrichment, musical instruments, tutoring for standardized tests, Minecraft camp. When she can, Jamari's mom will buy him the latest video game. Some parents worry about too much screen time for their kids. She's happy Jamari is in the house, away from everything outside.
1: It's called Terraria. It's a very, very large game.
0: In all Jamari's favorite games, you make the characters, you decide their powers, you control everything that happens, you play in a world completely designed by you. After hanging around on 16th Street for a while, that sounds awesome.
1: This really nice
0: type of... Chapter 4, Normal. Ms. Hathorn may be headed towards 70 and retirement, but she still has a way with the fourth graders.
2: What
1: do you always tell me? Hey, favorite teacher.
0: And do me in. There are moments I love about room 205. Like when the kids, unprompted, drag their chairs in toward Ms. Hathorn and the whiteboard until they end up huddled together like a big family around the TV, looking at their long division. Or when the whole fourth grade breaks into spontaneous applause, which happens a lot, actually. Like the day a kid who's repeating this year reads all the vocabulary words perfectly. Dependable. Indicate.
2: Um, burden means... Yeah, give him a hand.
0: Ms. Hathorne is considered a pro at Penn. She trained the principal, but she's also an old-school teacher. Her own training took place in the late 1960s. Back then, Chicago assigned black students to infamous temporary classrooms, specifically to avoid integration. So Ms. Hathorne's very first classroom wasn't even technically in a school. It was on the first floor of a housing project. She was assigned a mentor to help her become the best teacher possible. The first time she came, you you could tell she
2: was nervous because she had to go by the game boys to get back there. So while
0: she was in there, there was a fire. It was on an upper floor of the projects. And at one point, a mattress full of flames came crashing to the ground, fell right by the classroom door. That was enough for her mentor teacher. That lady, she says, Carolyn, would you walk me out to the car? (laughs) <laughs> she never came back. I had to do a journal so that she <laughs> could track what I was doing. And that was Ms. Hathorn's preparation as a teacher. The segregation and racism of the city baked right into her training. Few of the conditions she teaches in have changed. It's Ms. Hathorn's normal. Concentrated poverty, segregated schools, a bombed-out neighborhood. In Lawndale, a lot of things are normal that shouldn't be. As soon as I found out about the killing, I went to see Chelsea, the fourth grader with the outsized laugh. Her cousin Caprice was 16. On the funeral program, he has a baby face. He's floating in a blue, cloud-filled sky, light from the heavens all around. He was shot on the same block as Penn, I found Chelsea outside. She was just back from the funeral.
1: He got shot two times in the head and three times in the chest.
0: This has become the way Chelsea explains what happened, the refrain of her cousin's killing. The funeral was open casket.
1: He had a whole bunch of makeup on. Because the bullet holes, they they couldn't cover it up. So they have to put a whole bunch of makeup on him. And then he was over dark, like this.
0: Chelsea taps on my black car.
1: When you rolled your finger like that, the makeup came off. And it showed a little piece of the bully hole.
0: Because everybody kissed them on his forehead. Chelsea's big voice and her confidence make it easy to forget that she's just 10 years old. And she's one of the older kids out here. I feel like I've stumbled into a mini, impromptu memorial, one just attended by children.
1: I feel bad because she died.
0: At the place where Caprice was killed, balloons are tied to the stop sign. There are vigil candles, roses, a little stuffed animal cat in a blue dress. There's a gang name, the same one that's sometimes scribbled on Penn's playground equipment or spray-painted on the school.
1: I miss my cousin. I want a pickle.
0: Should I tell you something? I have never tried a sour pickle.
1: It's Ooh. sour. It's like, a, you know, it's like some
0: gum. The thing about kids, they don't really follow adult rules for talking about death. And even while they're grieving, they're still little kids debating what makes a good block party. Answer, a bouncy house. And how to best eat pickles.
1: Put the pickle juice with your hot Ooh. chips. Your sour pickle juice. Ooh, They don't make your chips hot like, and sour. I like coolay like pickles. When they cold and icy.
0: Chelsea's clutching the funeral program. Occasionally, a kid tries to snatch it. They want to see it.
1: Get it! Get it! Get it!
0: Is that the first person you've known who was was ever shot?
1: Um, Like,
0: Chelsea looks at me, puzzled almost. Like, of course Caprice is not the first person I've known to be shot.
1: I remember everything. I remember when my Uncle Ken got shot. My Uncle Ken got shot when I was five. I had another cousin named Will. I grew up with him. He helped my mama take care of me when my daddy was in jail until he got shot when I was seven. He had got shot in the head three times and Cabrice got shot two times.
0: While I was with the fourth graders in Lawndale, Arne Duncan was the U.S. Secretary of Education. He was in Chicago at one point to speak to a conference of education experts. They filled up five hotels. I told Duncan about the fourth graders in room 205. We talked about all their potential. But we also talked about them being hungry, the violence, families falling apart. He's seen all this. Would you have any message for those fourth graders for that class have faith
2: have faith and have faith uh work hard and you know as it's tough as it is as much as the odds may seem stacked kids very similar to them (laughs) have beaten those odds and done extraordinarily well so there's nothing that says that they can't make it is it more a more difficult road or a more difficult climb unquestionably yes but use that as fuel to uh To try and go to the next level.
0: Maybe I wasn't fair to Arnie Duncan, asking him what he'd tell the kids in room 205. Because honestly, I wouldn't tell the kids any different. I'd tell them to work hard, do your homework. You can do it, I'd tell them. But you can hear how that message sounds in the face of everything they're up against. And I'm playing Duncan's answer here, not to play gotcha, but because I think it really is the message our country gives to poor kids. Have faith, work hard. And I struggle more and more with that message the longer I stay in Lawndale. The problem isn't that we tell poor kids they can make it. The problem is we haven't made a world for them where that's really true. From WBEZ Chicago, this is The View from Room 205, a documentary about poverty and education. I'm Linda Lutton. Chapter 5, Turning the Screws. Nobody's ever told Penn that if they don't hit a certain target on tests, they'll be shut down. Nobody's had to. More than 100 schools in Chicago have either been closed or seen their entire staff fired. Penn's third floor has already been turned over to a charter school. By January, with standardized tests coming, you can feel the pressure rising in Room 205. Ms. Hathorn has begun using a code word in class.
2: Uh, I bring back to mind 18. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yes.
0: It turns out, and Ms. Hathorn didn't get this information until just recently, 18 of her students, more than half the class, barely passed third grade.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to do something about that 18 behavior. If you don't make it, it's because of choices you're making.
0: But Ms. Hathorn only half believes that. Really,
2: this class should be two classes for them to get the individual attention that they need. Um, that's, But that's not going to happen, so I need to make this work the best way possible.
0: One of her biggest challenges, one of the 18, is a little boy named Kareem. That's my
1: dad. Right, I'll sit right here. Child, I gotta get my, uh, my Cut it out. cut it out. Mom, yeah, Rachel,
0: Kareem fights with classmates. He falls out of his chair during lessons. Ah, uh, Kareem, would you please sit down? He's formed a little trio of terror with two other boys.
2: Get to me, boy! Miss
1: Hathorn.
0: Kareem is a constant threat to everything Miss Hathorns trying to accomplish this year. When you have a kid like him, and every school has one, you go to the parents— Ms. Hathorn has tried so many times to get Kareem's mom on the phone, she practically knows the number by heart. But she also knows Kareem is basically raising himself with some help from brothers and sisters not that much older than he is.
1: Ms. Hathorn, tell him to get my stuff. Give my,
0: stuff. Oh. my One day, an answered prayer a neighbor comes up to room 205 for Kareem. Yes, I'm his
1: godmom checking in on him. Yeah,
0: Ms. Hathorn calls Kareem up to the front of the room. His godmother stands right beside him. And Ms. Hathorn asks the fourth graders to tell Kareem how they feel about his disruptions. This is coming from them. Chelsea raises her hand to speak.
1: I feel bad because all she do is scream at him. She's losing her voice. She spent all her time on him.
0: Over the course of the year, there are lots of moments like this, moments where things feel like they're getting a tiny bit desperate in room 205. Sometimes it felt like somebody was slowly turning the screws on William Penn, and that made the principal turn the screws on the teachers and the teachers on their students.
1: Like, she don't got enough time to teach
0: us. Half a dozen kids get up to testify. Kareem has his hands in his pockets. He looks sometimes at the floor, sometimes at his classmates. Then his godmother takes over.
1: Now you want to tell your teacher in your class how sorry you is from wasting their time while she's trying to teach them and you taking they, they learning away. I'm sorry for taking y'all away.
0: <laughs> Say it like you mean it, he said. <laughs> I'm sorry, Cass, for taking
1: y'all away. No, no, no. No pinky, so so after a
0: few tries, the fourth graders seem to understand that Kareem is giving all he can. You're welcome, they say, not totally sure of what the correct response is after someone apologizes for taking your learning. Around this time, Ms Hathorne starts teaching six days a week. There's Saturday school at Penn in preparation for standardized tests. When the first round of scores come back, the news in room 205 is not good.
2: Uh, I'm not pleased, Ms. London. I'm not pleased. I had somebody go down minus 18, minus 17. I'm not pleased with that at all.
0: The teachers received the results at a staff meeting, and Ms Hathorne was in the uncomfortable position of having the least progress in the school, making her look bad in front of colleagues.
2: I'm not backing up. you better move up and get with me. Do we understand each other? Yes. I'm not sitting in another meeting, looking down at the floor again, because I'm embarrassed. It's not happening. And you're going to do something about it here. Yeah? I'm passing out to you your papers from yesterday.
0: Downstairs, the principal has posted every student's score on some giant charts. They take up an entire wall. Maybe you're wondering how everybody did. Who's succeeding? Which kids really prove that it's true? You can make it. Poverty is no excuse for low achievement. Everybody loves those stories about kids who defy their circumstances, schools that beat the odds. And they're valuable. We should learn as much as possible from those examples. But here's the problem. Those kids, those schools, they're outliers. And focusing on the outliers distracts from a bigger truth, that poor kids in the U.S. are not beating the odds, even after decades and decades of school reforms. Chapter 6, The Big Picture. The big picture is not easy to look at. It doesn't fill us with hope or match what our country is supposed to be about. It looks like this. The more poor kids in a school, the lower the scores. Nothing better predicts how kids will do on standardized tests than where they sit along the spectrum of poverty and privilege. Let's say we assigned all the fourth graders in the entire country to a place on a huge stairway based on their test scores. So the highest scoring kids would be up on the third floor and the lowest scoring kids would be in the basement. Nearly all poor kids are in the basement. Penn, despite its scores inching up for nearly a decade, is in the basement. That pattern, it's true across the country. It's true in every state true for public schools, for charter schools, and the gap between how rich kids and poor kids do, it's actually growing. Decades of fixing schools has not shaken poverty's hold. If we want to make the American dream real for poor kids, this is what we have to wrestle with. Chapter 7, The Man Who Lived Across the Street. I'm not the first person to be looking at poverty from this very spot.
1: Need I say more? Dr. Martin Luther King.
0: Thank you very kindly, Mrs. In 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. moved into a dilapidated apartment right across the street from William Penn, kitty-corner from the playground.
2: So that I can feel the needs of the people and live... uh, with them and live uh, like them in the sense that I want to poverty.
0: In North Lawndale, King's stairwell smelled like urine. The door to the street wouldn't lock. This was after he'd won the Nobel Peace Prize, after Birmingham and Selma. Now his target was poverty. He wanted an end to what he called slum jobs, slum wages, slum schools.
2: When a man does not have a good job and good wages, he's a slave. When a man cannot live in good, substantial housing conditions, he's a slave.
0: King wanted the government to battle poverty head-on. He called for a huge increase to the minimum wage and massive investment in neighborhoods like this one, billions of dollars. He wanted guarantees that no one would live below a certain income, and that income should be high, he said, not low. King said this would be the hardest part of the civil rights movement, because it was going to cost society something.
2: It's much easier to integrate a bus than it is to get a program that will force the government to put billions of dollars into ending slums.
0: Almost nothing of what King called for in Lawndale has been implemented, even partially. And that feels really obvious if you visit Lawndale. Just down the street from Penn Elementary, the Delcar Pharmacy is one of the only businesses that's hung on these 50 years. Neighborhood legend has it. Dr. King bought his newspaper here. There are a bunch of black and white photographs in the pharmacy of what the neighborhood looked like back then. They show a bustling 16th Street. Grocery stores, department stores, dentists, nightclubs. To me, the astounding thing about those pictures is how good things look. I have to keep telling myself this was the slum King was trying to end. It looked so much better than 16th Street today. The poverty rate is higher in Lawndale today than it was in 1966. The unemployment rate is at Great Depression levels. 75% of Lawndale residents older than age 16 don't have a job. For Black History Month, the fourth graders in room 205 learned a poem about King.
1: Today is the day we all sing in honor of Martin Luther King.
0: But the fourth graders won't hear that King lived across the street. They won't hear anything about poverty. They won't hear that King said people are poor because wages are low, because discrimination limits opportunities, because schools are underfunded. You're not poor because of you, he told people. I need one line, one single file
1: line.
0: If anyone can help North Lawndale kids get out of poverty, it should be Cheryl Moore Ali, Penn's principal. Because I'm from this community, I'm from North Lawndale. And, uh, you know, those kids are me, I was them. She knows what it's like to have to double up with relatives who are barely better off than you are. She still remembers the day an abusive boyfriend stabbed her mom on the street. Little Cheryl was by her side when it happened. There were the gangs that lured her brother. Despite all that, Cheryl Moore would go on to become valedictorian at her Westside high school. She made it to Illinois' best public university. Today, she has her doctorate. So I know that success happens in communities like this. I don't care if your shoes are flipping at the bottom, because that's the only pair that you have. You can do this no matter what. Dr. Ali's own triumph is the sort of trajectory we believe is possible. We want her story to be everybody's story. But when you hang out at Penn long enough, you see the complicated dance Dr. Ali and the teachers do to try to make Penn live up to its promise. Like she hired an extra third grade teacher to keep class sizes down. But that now means art is taught by two parents, and music is taught by a contractor. Ah. The instrument they're studying today is the orange Home Depot five-gallon bucket. Jamarie doesn't like coming to class. Dr. Ali resents having to cut corners, and her students need so much more. There are 367 kids at Penn, one of the neediest schools in the city, and just 18... Get time with a social worker. Not a single one of the fourth graders in room 205 qualifies. Penn's budget is, like a lot of public school budgets, never feels like enough. But even if Penn had all the resources of a wealthy school, if there were small class sizes and art and music, maybe even a little orchestra, the way Dr. Ali has imagined, the world outside would be just as mean. There would still be no fruit on 16th Street, no jobs, still no parent to call about Kareem, the boy who's mostly raising himself. Lots of kids this age are so easy to love. Their big hearts show through right away. Kareem hides under his hoodie, gives one-word answers. This is Kareem. He loved the idea of taking my tape recorder home, but he was guarded even when he was all by himself.
1: My favorite sports is basketball. That's all I have to say.
0: Little bits of Kareem's history have appeared from time to time in the newspaper. One headline, Mother of six charged with murder of boyfriend. It's a story about Kareem's mom allegedly killing her boyfriend with a steak knife. All six kids at home. The youngest of those was Kareem.
1: I don't play around. I would a rackin'. I buy a And
0: I love you, mom. Every time I come by room 205, Kareem is getting in trouble. Today, he's been put out of class. I'm just gonna walk him down the hall. Come on, Kareem. Come in, come here, young man. I'm not coming, Kareem says. He slowly starts to cry. He's standing against the wall in the hallway under his hood. Ms. Hathorn calls the security guard to get him to class.
1: Why are you crying? Huh? Because you're not listening, man. When you're grown and you don't listen,
0: you get sent to jail. Kareem is really sobbing now.
1: <laughs>
0: to me, it seems so obvious that something else is going on, something beyond being put out of class. I think Miss Hathorn probably sees that too, but she has a broader mission, 30 kids. <laughs> By now, I know a lot of things that could be making Cream cry. Maybe it's the unanswered Christmas letter he sent to his dad in prison. Ms. Hathorn helped him write that. Maybe it's his mom's addiction to leaf, a drug that's all over Lawndale. On the day she's supposed to check into rehab, she can't make it. Only God can judge me, her t shirt says that day.
1: Need some water? Need some air?
2: It's too much, and you still, you know, expect it to achieve in the midst of the chaos that goes on on a daily basis.
0: One morning, a guy posing as a parent walked into Penn, stole a teacher's cell phone off her desk, and left. The next day, in a move that felt audacious even for 16th Street, a woman tried to sell the phone back to the teacher. She wanted a hundred bucks. Penn called the police. I
1: didn't
2: want my money
0: We have this idea that schools can be radically different from the communities they're sitting in. We want schools to be havens, and Penn really is a haven in many respects. But schools are not impervious. Penn called the police twenty-two times in the school year I was there. Wrap your head around that for a minute. It's about once every other week at a grammar school. One day, police came to Penn for a different reason. They came for Kareem, his brother and sister. A foster care worker was there. She was bringing them to an emergency shelter. There was one police officer per child. In case they ran, Penn's assistant principal called the kids out of class. Kareem just cried. Now, see, look, we're not going to be together. That was what he said. We're not going to be together. Dr. Ollie couldn't watch. She stayed in her office.
1: I walked away from the scene. I didn't want to see it.
0: She convinced their new foster mom to bring them back to Penn for school. Chapter 9, Make It Happen. In the spring... When Principal Ali goes to a performance management session with district officials, they pick apart everything that can possibly be measured at Penn. Test scores, attendance rates, all down to the 10th of a percentage point. And when she gets back, Dr. Ali shares a torrent of frustration with her assistant principal.
1: You know, they don't understand what we deal with. I mean, 100% attendance would be perfect if we had perfect families. You know? But we don't. They just want us, you know, you got to get this. Make it happen. So we keep spinning our wheels trying to figure out how to make it happen. How do we do it? <laughs> what can
0: we do? The week before the big park test, I stopped at a staff meeting. It was in the principal's office. The third, fourth, and fifth grade teachers were gathered, including Ms. Hathorn. The topic was the upcoming park test. This, story,
1: this is first part. Have is to this the actual test?
0: Yeah. Each teacher was looking at a test booklet or photocopied test booklet. The park tests arrive in the mail. School officials are told to keep the box under lock and key until they give the exam. That's how serious security is around these tests. But now, here I was looking at the actual test, and so were the teachers. They were poring over reading passages and questions. Okay, this is Gary Talking. Oh, mm-hmm. We already read this. We, we read it. Yeah. Oh, good. Yep. It's like a practice. Fire. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, let me see these questions, I already know the story. Yeah. I acted like this was the most normal thing in the world, to see teachers paging through the state-standardized exam. But inside, all I could think of was, why? Why are they doing this? I did not want to be seeing this. What, um, was that the real park test you guys were looking through? Uh, yeah, we have, we have a test. It's Principal Ali. You have the actual test, Mm -hmm. huh? So can the teachers look through that like that? Uh, they they can see the test. We can give them the test before the the test happens. Um, I want to familiarize them with the format of the test, but it doesn't say that they can't have the test before the assessment. So hopefully they can. Actually, no, they can't. And that's really clear in all the rules schools are given about this test. I didn't come here to report on standardized tests or to do some expose. My thing was to see up close what poverty throws at 9- and 10-year-olds and how their schools respond. It wasn't until later that I realized... What I saw at that staff meeting was part of my story. It's part of what we get by telling schools there's no excuse for low scores, by turning the screws. I'm not saying we get cheating every time, and I'm not even sure I should call what happened at Penn cheating. Sometimes I would leave Penn, turn on the news in my car, and hear about big, blatant cheating. Like Atlanta, where teachers were told to get scores up by any means necessary. They changed kids' answer sheets. That's not what I saw at Penn, but the pressure feels the same. With just three weeks left of school, everybody in room 205 lines up, Kelsey at the front of the line, Jamarie at the end, and they march downstairs to a basement computer lab to take the highest-stakes test of the year in this pale-yellow cinder block room. The kids' scores will help determine Miss Hathorne's rating as a teacher and Penn's rating as a school. I notice nearly all the kids are carrying their class planners— which have a whole reference section inside. Miss Hathorn had instructed the kids to bring them, which is weird since no reference materials are allowed in testing. How come you guys brought this to testing? So
1: they can help us with what we have to do with timetables. We got our timetable charts, and we, we had to name the shapes. This is an agenda book.
0: They have the shapes in there, too? Where yes. is that? Oh, I see. It's...
1: Shape, sizes, and models is all right here. If you don't know, your money is right here. If you don't know, your decimals.
0: The fourth graders were in the computer lab for an hour or so. When I wandered back, testing was wrapping up. Did you finish testing?
2: Yeah. Would you let us come out,
0: please? (coughs) Sure. When they were lining up to go, little Kelsey came up to me quietly, and he whispered this right into my microphone. Nothing more.
1: They don't like you.
0: what did you say? They don't like you. They don't like you. These things I saw, the teachers looking at the test ahead of time, kids using reference materials, they're not allowed, and they're wrong. They're also the first things I've told you about in this whole story that would ever make a news headline. And you can probably imagine that story, too the principal on the hot seat the teacher all the fingers pointed but now imagine all the things i've told you about that would never get a headline that would never get our attention all you would not know about pen you wouldn't know that the fourth graders learned the word ripe from a dictionary you wouldn't know about the killing of chelsea's cousin or about kelsey missing breakfast and lunch that's not news you wouldn't learn that not one of the fourth-graders gets time with a social worker. It can be hard to look at schools like Penn, hard to look at places like Lawndale, and I think that's why we mostly look away. The whole idea that kids and schools can overcome poverty, that idea allows us to look away because we tell ourselves the problem of poverty and unemployment will be taken care of by the schools by the fourth graders and their teachers working hard. A week after Room 205's big test, I ran into Ms. Hathorne in the hallway. She brought up what I had seen. Uh, With the agenda books, I've debated about that. I'm sorry
2: I did. It didn't help the scores. My kids have always achieved. This is the first time I've ever put myself in a situation like this. So it makes people wonder, has she been credible for the last 20 years? I know Penn is so close to being closed, and uh, I think I let my emotions get in my way. You know, in this time, space of time, so much is dependent on achievement uh, in terms of whether your school doors stay open whether people maintain jobs. There's so many things in a school
0: like this sh- that should be in place in terms of helping children to be successful. I tell Ms. Hathorn, that's the whole point of me being here, to see what Penn is up against, what schools are up against.
2: Don't nobody care, that's the bottom line,
0: Miss London. Nobody cares. Maybe you're listening to this story and you're thinking the whole problem here is not poverty. It's Penn. Maybe you're thinking that a good school could overcome all this. Just down 16th Street is a charter high school. Many Penn students come here after eighth grade. It was started 20 years ago by a former Catholic priest, John Harran. His goal was to get Lawndale kids into college, pretty much the only path out of poverty these days. I guess I didn't know back then how many obstacles kids had to and families had to fight through. So
2: I thought we'd be able to do this; that it'd be a snap. But it's not a snap. I mean, you need uh, God. You need more counselors, and you need alumni counselors, and you need
0: social you workers, need to to trips colleges, to colleges, a fund for student emergencies. He's gotten donors to pay for it all. More kids are earning college degrees thanks to this high school. But it's still far, far from what he imagined, not anywhere near half his students. So now the school is getting even more aggressive. Haran is building housing like a dorm so his students won't have to worry about eviction, heat, food. Is this what schools have to do to become the great equalizers we expect them to be? Chapter 10 What If? I want to tell you about the end of the school year at Penn. All the fourth graders in room 205 passed to the fifth grade. There were cupcakes for Kareem's birthday. Okay,
1: Kareem, happy birthday from the whole classroom, and I wish you many, many more.
0: Penn did not meet its testing goals the year I was there, despite all efforts, legitimate and not so legitimate. More recently, scores are back up. Penn's scores on the park test are the same as the charter school upstairs. They scored better than the restaffed schools in Lawndale. But, of course, all those schools are still miles below where middle class kids score. We believe schools can overcome poverty. But what if we're wrong? What if we're putting way too much faith in schools to overcome all the obstacles poverty presents? Not because poor kids are any less bright or talented, not because they don't work as hard, simply because money, the kind of money that middle class or affluent people have, that money buys experiences that help kids understand the world, understand the word ripe. It buys music lessons and sports practice, connections to people with jobs and opportunities. Money buys dinner every night, buys a neighborhood where kids are not shot, buys a school with more resources. I want to be really clear. I think we should work as hard as possible to make schools as good as we can make them. This is where our kids spend all day. It's where they learn to be thinkers and citizens. But what if we're just plain wrong about schools being able to overcome poverty? That would mean that all our school reforms, decades of them, they might be making schools better. But they're not making the American dream come true. Not for kids in neighborhoods like Lawndale. I can
2: feel the needs of the people and live...
0: After his time in Lawndale, Martin Luther King became even more convinced that poverty should be attacked head-on. He said trying to fix housing or education is just too indirect. Each seeks to solve poverty by first solving something else, he wrote. The biggest supporters of the idea that schools can overcome poverty, they often call education the civil rights issue of our time. They challenge the quality of schools, and their right to do that. But they don't challenge what King was challenging, the conditions kids live in, the conditions in which school takes place. The View from Room 205 was produced by WBEZ Chicago. I'm Linda Lutton. I want to give huge thanks to the fourth graders, their families, and everyone at William Penn Elementary School, especially Ms. Hathorne and Dr. Ali. They didn't have to open their doors, but they did, and I'm grateful. This story would not exist without editors Marianne McCune and Kate Cahan. It was mixed by Joe DeSoe, executive producer Ben Calhoun. Reporting was supported by a Spencer Fellowship in Education Reporting at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. If you want to see photos from North Lawndale or illustrations of room 205, go to wbez.org slash room 205.